This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so incredibly honored and excited that we have Dr. Omar Latif from Rush University Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Latif. And could you tell us a little bit uh, about your role and about your background, uh, both at in your field as well as working at the Rush University Medical Center? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's really an honor having this conversation. I'm the president and CEO of Rush University Medical Center, um, but I, I started out sort of a, a, as a fellow here at Rush University in the, in the ICU. I'm a pulmonary and critical care trained physician. I used to be the director of the medical intensive care unit and then the program director of our training fellowship. And I got very interested in quality and uh, sort of built uh, a, a lot of tools in place to try to monitor what is quality, what is real quality, what is meaningful quality, and the impact of it on patients and patient experience. And as both a patient and as a doctor, uh, this is an extremely sensitive issue. And, you know, we just really, I, I got really intrigued by making sure that the measures that are being used are accurately reflecting the good work that just about every healthcare professional I've ever met in my entire life aspires to deliver. Dr. Latif, once again, thank you very much for being here. And we've had a few physicians who have been CEOs of, of medical systems on the podcast in, in the past, Eric Dixon from, from UMass. And, and that really is exciting to have a physician as a CEO. But I would wager my next paycheck that when you were in medical school, you didn't see yourself being the CEO of a large health system. And, and tell us Tell us a little bit more how that came to be. Yeah, so I was sitting in the ICU one day and I got a call from the chief medical officer and he was telling me that I had too many line infections or I had too many infections. And uh, I had, we had taken a lot of transfers a couple days earlier and that night. One was a patient that had almost no discernible white blood cell count at all with pancreatic cancer. And somehow, you know, I was being blamed for having an infection instead of uh, this institution being congratulated for taking such a sick person and trying to save their life. We started to argue that these metrics that were measuring things weren't accurate. And when we did that, nobody listened because healthcare is filled with frustrated people that are trying to make uh, uh, some type of change. What that translated into was us developing a solution before I would take it to administration and say, hey, this measure is wrong because it's not capturing A, B, and C. And when we started to do that, we started looking at the national metrics. We started really trying to paint a picture of where we were. What that effectively did in a meritocracy was uh, recreate us or rebrand uh, us as problem solvers and not sort of just people trying to raise issues. And I think when you do that, not just in healthcare, but in any industry, when you go and you bring solutions, there's a real willingness for people to want to listen and try to make change. So in that small little MICU where we started changing outcomes, after that experience, the outcomes ended up being really well received. And then we were asked, I was asked to take a couple more ICUs. Then after being in charge of four ICUs, I was asked to take care of sort of the inpatient facility. And then after a while, I became the chief medical officer. As a chief medical officer, you get a whole new experience and, and insight into meeting a board and understanding even what a board is. And 
I think, uh, Harvey, you mentioned sort of going back to medical school. Nobody in healthcare ever understands what a board is or what a what that whole infrastructure is. And it's surreal that that would exist when you sit, spend your time trying to get a, an A in organic chemistry. So I would say that 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 experience of being a chief medical officer really made me believe that there's a lot of opportunity to drive changes in healthcare that many people in administration were willing to listen to, but didn't see a tunnel, didn't see light through the end of the tunnel. And it was in that pursuit that I transitioned from the chief medical officer to the CEO. I really just wanted to make an impact and try to make meaningful changes in healthcare. I never anticipated being the CEO, and I, I often wish I had a time machine because I started being the CEO about five months before the pandemic. So I think that uh, it was an it was an amazing uh, and unique experience. But but I do believe very much that physician CEOs have a or, or nursing CEOs, people that come out of healthcare have a unique insight into the emotion and the feelings of the of 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 people in the healthcare system and are incredibly important. Wow, that that's a great story and and yes, certainly it is. you know, I can definitely see HF doing that in, in the future as well. Um you know, so one of the things that we've gotten through our partnership and relationship with Vizient is is some of the rankings of different healthcare systems across the country when it comes to quality. And Rush is is always about uh, what well, I think you are number one or number two as far as that goes. Um, was Rush always in the in the top, or or what is the journey like, and how did how did Rush really you know make make those strides to improve its quality? Yeah, and so not to be cliche, but the really the, the the really important part of what you said is that it is a journey, and I think you take a step back and really really recognize that you can't make changes in one day that are that uh, are lasting, meaningful, and repeatable. And so I would say that not only were we not um, number one, we didn't know what the metrics meant. You know, we were like every other healthcare system. Everybody that trains in healthcare, every graduate from medical school I've ever met is good. They come into the field to make a difference and a profound difference. And they don't necessarily know what they're being measured for and by what, and we're not clear and transparent about that. So our first foray into this space was, are the metrics right? And things like Vizient, which are interactive and go both ways are very helpful as opposed to there are metrics that exist where people from the outside are just telling you you're no good and you have no <laughs> idea what the metrics are. You have no idea if they make any sense and they don't jive with your internal data. And yeah. so, but people could publish or do whatever they want. So our journey was one that began with first turning the lights on to understand our data. Do we have a problem with C. diff infections? Do we have a problem in readmissions? Is it real or is it something lost in the data? If it's real, let's fix it. But the only way you know if it's real is, uh, is if once you clean the data, then you look at what the problem is and then you have to understand the drivers. That process could take a year. It could take a year to understand do you really have a problem because the, the margins for how you're ranked are so tight. You can look like you're one of the worst hospitals in the country and be six patients off in readmissions. And uh, that could unfairly bias your system to invest all kinds of resources into a non-problem. In those cases, the metrics are the problem. And I think what we did a really good job of at Rush was turning our lights on to understand what are, where are our problems for real then we spent time understanding the drivers and we invested in resolving those drivers. When we did that, we started our, we, you saw us go from like 70th to 10th to third to second to one to one to one and then the second again. And I think that 
you know, really once you're inside that top 10, the margins are so tiny, it doesn't really matter. It's largely a material. And I don't, and, and I've always been hesitant in general for rankings. They sh- I, I'm okay with groupings. But when you're, when you're talking about people who dedicate their lives to making a difference and tell one you're a one and the other you're a seven, that's to me is largely kind of not okay. They're all great. So having a quartile, a one, a two, a three, a four, being able to set metrics, this is not a precise science. And because it's not a precise science, parsing out such details over one versus seven versus nine are pretty difficult to do. Yeah, and you you talk about the metrics, and a lot of times we don't we don't like the metrics that we're measured on, or, or we don't like the way that we are measured, uh, specifically with CMS, and, and and there may be some justification in that. And I know that I know that you have been involved with with CMS to to look at to look at that process, and do you think that CMS could improve in the way that hospitals and healthcare systems are measured to to truly reflect the care that we're giving. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really I think the question is, do the metrics deliver a meaning, the, the meaningful intent? So I intend to have a metric to say good hospital, bad hospital is the is is that real? Is the data that goes into it actually tell me what tells me what a good hospital is versus a bad hospital? And I think in healthcare, we all know of systems that win all kinds of awards that may not be delivering high quality care. And we know of healthcare systems that offer horrendous care and you know, winning all kinds of awards, vice versa, you know, in, in all different directions. That's a data problem. I mean, your CIOs will tell you that's a data problem. And I think that we have to be very so I think that CMS has decided to embark on an impossible challenge. When the if, if they're gonna say good versus bad. There are some metrics that are okay to do that, but I think you have to be really careful when we're so similar in how as a nation we provide care. Nobody's advocating you know, that we don't regulate the industry, but I would argue that trying to differentiate hospitals like hotels is really difficult. You can't just take a star, like a one star, a two star, a three star, and say that tells you the same thing a one-star hotel or a two-star hotel is, because within a hospital, there's so much diversity. There could be a phenomenal orthopedic surgical area, phenomenal so abdominal transplant division, but they may not have an endocrinologist because they got in an argument and all walked. So being able to say that's a five-star hospital, if you're there for endocrine, you'd be better off going down the street. So my the, the, the CMS embarked on a mission to say five-star, four-star, three-star, then has another mission to say, we're going to pay you for good care, bad care. I think the fundamental challenge of saying, is that really good care or bad care? That has to be a bilateral process that involves all the stakeholders, that involves transparency. It should not be so complicated that you need statisticians to take apart the models. Like a general surgeon should know why his score is what his score is. A healthcare system should know. A, a, a ICU doctor should understand why the infection rate is what it is. And if you can't, that's a problem with, I believe, with the metric. And our interactions with CMS have been to push for transparency. Everybody should write out what goes into the metrics. Things like latent variable models and whole buildings dedicated to creating uh, nomenclature to figuring this out 
I understand it comes from a good place. And, and these people that are working at CMS are dedicated people who are have a mission to say good versus bad. I think my only problem is it becomes really challenging to say this is bad care. And I, I just you're going to have to work really hard to convince me the doctors are providing bad care in this country. That doesn't mean there's not bad cases, but overarching bad care is not a pandemic. Yeah, we, we talked about it earlier on the program. And I think what you're just describing as far as um, how we mostly practice similar uh, types of medicine in this country, yet we have a, a heart failure mortality metric. Whereas if you go to any hospital in the country, they're gonna treat mortality almost exactly the same. Um, but then that hospital versus another is going to be way off compared to you know the best in the country as far as mortality. And it's all based on how well they document the case. Um, and so you know one of the things you you have listed, or uh, I see you know from Rush listed that, that you've been involved in is working to make sure one that the key national me measures are transparent, and then two that they measure what they are intended to measure. And then then one other point that you make is that. They don't have any unintended consequences um, about how healthcare is delivered. So, can you talk a little bit about how some of these measures lead to unintended consequences? So, if you decide you need to get a knee replacement in this country, uh, a regular any person may look at a sort of commercial ranking, may, Newsweek, the U.S. News, uh, Medline, you know, any one of any different measures. A consumer, if it says orthopedic surgery, this is a ranking, will assume that a high rank on there means you're going to get a good knee surgery. It turns out that one of the most famous metrics that's used, a ranking, excluded joints from the orthopedic surgical ranking. So to me, that's wow. not transparent. And the re But I understand they excluded it because they'll say, well, we, we measured it in this other way, in this other area, and we documented it here. But my next door neighbor doesn't know that. They need a hip replacement. So they're going to go to the number one orthopedic surgical hospital in the country without knowing that it excluded joints. The unintended consequences, they may not have a joint surgeon. They may not have the best joint surgeon. Another unintended consequence is you like as a hospital ranking may be unfairly inflated by popularity of the brand. It may have a, a prominent undergraduate institution. So a hospital like, for example, Baptist could have undoubtedly some of the best trained people in the country who've trained next to people that are running programs and then might have been chosen over them to be the chief resident. And that person ends up going to a very prestigious hospital down the street with a big name or a big undergraduate institution. The undergraduate institution ends up to be a quarter of the overall score of the hospital. So the unintended consequences, I look, all I need to know is where do I have a good patient experience and where is my outcome good? If I'm gonna get a heart surgery and I've had two heart surgeries before, and this is a third redo, I want to know who does a third redo. I don't want to know what hospital's famous, and because they got that extra 25%, it jumped ahead of the hospital that does the best third redo. So I think when you, you we, we outfox ourselves with the complexity of what we include in these rankings, and they're much, they should be much simpler. The reason they're not simple is because we're dead set on saying this is number one, this is number two, this is number three, as opposed to saying this, these are high quality outcomes. These are mediocre quality outcomes. I think if we loosen our desire up as a nation to go one, two, three, four, five, we'll actually get more accurate results and be more clear with patients. 
That's what I mean about unintended consequence. Here's the other unintended consequence. There's an expression called gaming the system. Like you, so for example, an unintended consequences in healthcare is to actually fix where the problems are. If you punish somebody where there's a problem, but it's not really a problem, you're, cha- you're forcing that hospital to change their care of patients when there's not even a problem. You're forcing a hospital to invest in the care of a patient and solve something that doesn't exist. And so that's best explained by an example. So in the heart failure readmission reduction plan in, in the, the federal government uses, the N that separates average, top decile, and lowest decile is less than 20. All right, less than 20. Over three years for a 500-bed hospital. So if I say, oh, my God, I am tired of having the lowest decile. You said that N is less than 20? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's been that's been published and that's been well documented. And so, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but the ends can be smaller than that because you, you're talking about if you just picture a sheet of paper and you put a bunch of dots of every hospital in the country, they're all in the same area. And if the government's drawing a line, good versus bad, they're drawing it in the center of that thick area. So the difference between good and bad is like almost minuscule. So here's the unintended consequence. An administrator comes in. Right. This is what drives me crazy and why I probably won't be a long term healthcare administrator because I'll get fired at some point. But someone will come in and say, <laughs> we have a heart failure readmission problem. We need to get a you know patient navigator to heart failure, new doctors and a dedicated service for heart failure. So now you've invested a million dollars that you could put in to taking care of uninsured people on the west side of Chicago. And instead, I'm spending a million dollars on a problem that's not real. On, on, a, on a numerical problem. So that's the problem with rankings as they exist. They're numeric. Many of them are numerical problems, and we lack the transparency to highlight that. How, how do we fix that, uh, Omar? I mean, with open and honest conversations with providers. And so it can't be so technical that that nobody understands them anymore. I mean, and, and so look, the consumer ones, there's nothing we can do about it. Any magazine can rank whoever they want. Right or wrong, they're they're in general good people, but they're going to rank who they want. But the United States government, the federal rankings, there's a different calling for that. And I think that requires an upheaval of how we look at healthcare. That's going to be systematic change, lobbying these organizations, the CMS and HHS, to really understand because we're, we're on the same team. People in healthcare are all on the same team. Every single person that works in your hospital does not want their heart failure patient readmitted. Right. But what we want are help solutions. Don't make us spend money to fix a metric. Help us prevent heart failure readmissions. And if it was easy, we'd all be doing it, you know. And so where there's real problems, let's invest in real solutions and not punitive in in the punitive nature of health. Yeah. So one other piece that I think you've written about before is that uh, so we have all these different organizations that, that measure us on quality, like you were saying, CMS, um, we get data from Vizient, um, you know, all these different registries measure us, as well as, you know, um, U.S. News and World Report, LeapFrog, et cetera. Uh, I think you wrote a paper uh, describing the disagreement rates between those uh, different agencies and that how that will lead to, I, I guess, uh, developing a composite ranking score. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, so I, this is really neat. So how can in the same hospital in one ranking be ranked at the top of quality and in another ranking be ranked at the bottom of quality? 
if they both say we're measuring quality, right? How are you a five in one on a one to five and a two in the other on a one to five? It's because that black box or the metrics they use are different. But not everybody clearly delicits their metrics. Some do a good job, but they don't show their weights. Some show some of their weights and not others. All we did was where we were frustrated one day and I was watching. I'm a big college football fan. You guys are from Tennessee. You're probably big college football fans. Oh, man. So, yeah. so I will say hour. that I take a step back and um, take a step back. And I looked at how the BCS came about to take all these different rankings, put them together and say, this is how you pick the best team. And then you're going to use a playoff predictive model and try to. And that's how you're going to pick these teams together. So we basically said, all right. If we took all the rankings and average them, is it at least directionally accurate? Because what's not okay is to tell a hospital in one ranking we're number one and another ranking we're number 612. So what we did is the first thing we did is we looked at the discordance between them. We found out that there's a lot of variability. It's statistically there's a lot of variability between each different ranking. That's okay because they're different rankings. That's what the authors would say of each ranking. The problem is they all say they're they're measuring the same thing, quality and safety. Two of the most overused words in the ranking world are you is a high quality and safe. They define safe differently. They define quality differently. So what we did was said, all right, would if we averaged them all, what would that ranking look like? And would the hospital to be number one make sense? And it turned out the hospitals that were number one all made sense. Because if you take as many rankings as you can get, at least there might be some value of average, of averaging. And I think healthcare quality is a consistent exercise. You don't have to be number one in every area to be a great hospital. You just have to have some excellence in each area so that you could bring it all together when you need to. What you don't want is great, you know, endocrine, great rheumatology, you know, you know, no GI. And, and that's where you get problems. So that's why we, we came about the average thing. And when we did that, I believe it was Mayo that was on top. And I think a lot of people would realize Mayo has good care. I think one of the, you know, so one of the funny things is that almost every hospital in the country can choose one of these different rating systems and say they're number 100%. one in, in X and put up a banner. It's funny. If you go to any hospital, they're number one in something. Sure. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about quality versus value and, and, and the difference and, and, and how how do you in, in healthcare how do you measure value it, because the value may it, it may be different for different patients does that make sense so, yeah so there was this article that came out I believe from Vanderbilt a couple of days ago that showed that and it was very salacious and it said that 90 percent of the people that died from COVID did not have to die if they could get uh, ECMO so that like drove me crazy because the assumption was ECMOs like penicillin, right? Like, you know, we had at one point during the pandemic, I think 16 people on ECMO, it was like a nightmare, like the amount of resources intensity did. Now, it, yeah, it worked, but it was, it was a great thing. So the cost of that, of ECMO is what? A quarter of a million dollars per patient in the country, maybe $200,000, $150,000. And you know, it's very valuable for the right patient, but we absolutely don't have international resources to create that as standard of care. Maybe we should. Maybe we should have ECMO circuits line in every hospital and elevate to that training. That's a different argument. But today, you can, like, the, the quality and value are a challenging dilemma because value implies 
you're going to get the best outcomes for a large percentage of the population. The way we practice today is we want the best outcomes for every part of the population. Exactly. Because of that, we spend half of our healthcare dollars on the last 10 days of life, you know, and, and that is probably not a good place to spend our healthcare dollars. It'd be much better doing smoking cessation investments as opposed to lung cancer, robotic lung cancer resections, um, you know, that are palliative. We just have to sort of straighten that out. So what I would say is the government is pushing towards value. Measuring value is important to get right, because if we measure value the same way we measured quality or just like take the word quality and use it for value, I don't know that that's going to help us because then it's going to also be a CIO's problem. It's going to be a documentation problem. It's going to be so the doctors that I know that are amazing come in at two in the morning, uh, like drain blood out of a person's head, do not write down their BMI was elevated, low calorie diet. Like they say, drain, place, remove patients alive and walking. Life shouldn't be an I got you moment in healthcare where, well, you didn't put that in, so I'm giving you $87 less. Or, and your mortality is higher because you didn't write down their, their obesity doesn't get counted towards you. I think we have a lot of fixing to do by taking a step back and saying, let's, let's all agree we're on the same team. Let's all agree that the true north is good outcomes is measured by morbidity and mortality at, at the lowest, most efficient cost. And that, you know, so we can't do ECMO for everybody. But if we studied and found out that there were hospitals that were chilling during a pandemic and had six ECMO circuits, we should have a conversation with them. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting what you're just talking about with the the best doctors that aren't necessarily the best documenters. So therefore, external agencies might not necessarily think they're the best doctors. And that I think that's a problem that we see a lot and we talk about a lot, but it's not understood by the wider patient community uh, or anybody else about, you know, some of the costs that go into healthcare are that we have to spend a lot of resources and money trying to trying to get our notes and everything to look perfect so that we can, you know, trying get to get credit, credit for work. For, exactly. so, you know, I, I, I probably come off too passionate about this and I apologize. But again, everybody in healthcare comes in to save lives. Nobody I know walks into a hospital anywhere in this country that says, I'm going to do a really bad job today. And so, but nobody I know that through four years of med school and seven, eight years of residency and fellowship combined ever learned how to document hyponatremia in a patient they did, you know, an adrenalectomy on. So they're, they're going to take out the adrenal glands. It's a complicated surgery. They're going to do a Whipple. And if the sodium dropped, I, I appreciate that that's important, but not, but, it, but we'll have treated it because no one lets a person sit hyponatremic, but not calling it hyponatremia treated with this should not penalize your quality score, your value score, or let your next door neighbor think that you're not as good as the other person down the street. And we can't create a system that's so dependent on just catching something. We have to move past I got you to a better system, not based I, on coding. I totally agree, you know, and, and we're doing, we're in addition to us switching over to Vigent's clinical database, we're actually doing some some work with them to help improve our uh, national quality scorecard. And invariably, the common thread is improving CDI, improving CDI. And 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 I think it's 
that's the common thread, not just with with our healthcare system, but with others saying, you know, you guys do a good job. And as Jake said, taking care of heart failure, you're just not documenting <laughs> documenting that well. And, 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 and for for a clinician, it's, it's just very, very frustrating. As you said, we, we didn't learn any of this in medical school at all. I, I remember my first day. My first day on the job, I, I got a, a note card that had a bunch of codes on it. And I asked the office manager, I said, what's that? She said, well, that's the codes that you need to be coding, yeah. you know, your, your visits. And I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. But anyway, I digress. No, I don't think it's a, I, I would I would sort of bring it to a close with this. I think that that as healthcare providers in this country and over the last two years that have in every level of every place I've been in every corner of this country have been heroic nurses and doctors, the idea of catching them because they didn't write a good note or how about this penalizing them because they took care of a lot of COVID. So their length of stay was higher when compared to a hospital in a non COVID region is insane. And as a nation, we can do better. And the work is calling it out. I would say one, one sort of plug for Vizient is that they're responsive to real-time conversation. You could engage with them and say, okay, why is this where it is? You can't engage with other people that are doing these rankings, or if you do, it'll take three hours to make a change. And in the meantime, my next-door neighbor thinks we're not a good hospital, or we're a great hospital, and it just shouldn't be like that. Well, well, Dr. Latif, this is fantastic. I uh, love your passion. It is contagious. Uh, wow, this has been really, really good. I hope that you'll consider coming back on the podcast again in the future because this was really dynamic and I'm just so thankful. And on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, just a big hearty thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time today. Well, and thank you. You guys were in a hot zone several different times for three or three or four of these surges and you guys did an amazing job. And it's really, it's wonderful to see kind of the, the outcomes that, uh, that came out of that region with COVID. So I know it's a team effort and it's, you know, kind of applause to all of you. Take care, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Omar. I really appreciate that.